Good morning. My name is Kelly Finlayson. I will be your scripture reader this morning. A reading from the Good News according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you people say I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? And they answered him. Um, he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great sufferings and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this all quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd and his, with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what, it, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. The Gospel of Christ. Praise your Lord. Jerry Schobert. To many people living in the first century, the Jesus movement looked like a failure. Its leader, a Jewish itinerant preacher from an out-of-way, out-of-the-way province known as Galilee, had been crucified by the Romans. Indeed, he hadn't even been accepted by the Jewish leaders of his day. Clearly, one of the challenges for leaders in the early Jesus movement was to make sense out of Jesus' death. To Jews, a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. By definition, the Messiah would be God's anointed who would liberate Jews from her Roman oppressors. To non-Jews, most of the people living throughout the Mediterranean world, a crucified person was a loser. Most writers of the New Testament take up this challenge of how to make sense out of Jesus' death. 
One thing they do is to talk about his resurrection, meaning that his death was not the end of the story. Another thing they do, particularly the gospel writers, is portray Jesus as an innocent victim, a victim of injustice who suffered greatly. But then the gospel writers go on to talk about Jesus' death in relation to his followers. First, they talk about Jesus Christ having died for them, for us, for our sins, etc. In some way, Jesus' death dealt with what separated us from God. And we celebrate this whenever we celebrate the Eucharist, a thanksgiving for what God has done for us. But second, the New Testament writers talk not only about what Jesus has done for them, but also of the way, in some way, that they have died with Jesus. The Apostle Paul expresses this in a variety of ways. I have been crucified with Christ, but I live. No longer I, but Christ lives in me. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Interestingly, such statements reflect a variety of sayings that Jesus himself made, such as what we find in our scripture reading today. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. The idea seems to be that in some way, the lives of Jesus' followers were to reflect the life of Jesus himself, in particular, in his vocation that led to his death. But what exactly does that mean? What does taking up one's cross look like? I think it's often assumed that taking up one's cross means facing whatever we find onerous without complaining. In other words, being a stoic, grinning and bearing it. But is that what Jesus meant? Don't make a fuss? It is true that the Gospels depict Jesus as willingly going to the cross, but there was plenty in his life that he complained about, plenty that he did not merely accept. 
Clearly taking up one's cross has sacrificial living in view, but can we be any more precise about what kind of sacrifice Jesus was talking about here? In order to answer that, I want to go back to the first part of the scripture reading today, where Jesus asked his disciples who people say that he is. Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Ironically, although years later Jesus would become commonly known as Jesus Messiah or Jesus Christ, they mean the same thing, he himself was more cautious about taking on the title Messiah. And the reason is almost certainly because the majority of Jews at the time expected the Messiah to be a military figure who would lead a rebellion to li liberate Israel from its Roman oppressors. This, however, was not how Jesus understood his vocation. We are reminded of Jesus' temptation, where Satan offers him everything he wants if Jesus would only worship him. But Jesus rejects Satan's way to get the job done. And so what gets set up in the Gospels is a tension over how God works. It's a tension over what success looks like. I remember years ago a colleague of mine who was going to give a talk on uh, uh, Christians in business wanted to know what the biblical understanding of success was. I came back to him and said I didn't think there was one. Instead, the Bible talks about things like faithfulness and righteousness. While I may have overstated the point a bit, the book of Proverbs, for example, does talk about living successfully. It does raise the question regarding Jesus' modus operandi, because the way he carries on does not seem to have success as a goal, at least not the way we typically understand success. And it's not just Jesus. In the, in the ninth century BC, a military commander named Omri not to be confused with the Omni, the compact Dodge car from the 1980s. <laughs> Omri took power in the northern kingdom of Israel, and by all accounts, he had a fairly successful eight-year reign. He unified the country, he expanded the borders against his enemies, and unlike most Israelite kings, he was well known in Assyrian records of the day as being an effective king. But the Old Testament records nothing of what he said, 
and summarizes his activity in just 13 verses. Compare, on the other hand, the prophet Jeremiah, who was persecuted, imprisoned, and eventually shipped off to Egypt. The Old Testament gives him 1,364 verses. At the end of the day, it is clear that those responsible for preserving the traditions of Israel saw more value in what the prophets and poets had to say than in what the kings said and did, save perhaps for David. More important than those who could be said to have succeeded in terms of power and influence were the poets. To bring the illustration up to date, we might ask, when historians in the year 2500 look back at our time, who will they think has had greater influence in the world? Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, or Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Oscar Romero, Desmond Tutu. Perhaps you think this to be a naive question. But in the first century, it would also have seemed to be a naive and presumptuous question to ask. In 500 years, who will have had the greater influence in the world? Caesar or that itinerant rural preacher from Galilee. In the year 500, there was no longer a Roman Empire. But the Jesus movement was alive and well. The question I'm raising here, I admit, is a bold one. Who, at the end of the day, will have the greater success and greater impact on the world. The prime ministers, presidents, generals, and corporate executives, or the saints and martyrs. Believing that it is the latter is, I believe, part of what it means to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the resurrection. That is, I believe God is at work in the world. I believe that death is not the final word. There are a number of indicators that we use to identify success. Money, of course, is a fundamental one. The more we have, the more successful we think we are. Multi-millionaires tell us that it's the way to keep score. Possessions are closely aligned with money. They, they are more visible. The kind of house we live in, the car we drive, etc. Accomplishments, how high we rise in the organization, how far we have gone academically, what we have achieved in the community, etc. What we can put on our CV or resume. 
popularity. What other people think of us is often a mark of success. Now, a fairly typical thing for the preacher to do at this point is to say that none of these things really matter and you should all feel very guilty about valuing any of them. Instead, you should give it all up and follow the way of Jesus and go on feeling bad about yourself. Indeed, there are movements within the church that do exactly that. Since the fourth century, monasticism has been a way of abandoning the typical indicators of success and instead taking on the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. While I have a lot of respect for monks and nuns, I don't think monasticism is necessarily what Jesus was calling his followers to. Nor do I think that monasticism is necessarily a higher calling, higher than being, say, a teacher or a nurse or accountant or bus driver. Take money, for instance. Jesus actually had a lot to say about the dangers associated with money. But I'm also reminded of the text in the book of Proverbs, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with food that I need, or I shall be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I shall be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. The sage acknowledges the need for some wealth in order to avoid poverty, but also knows that too much wealth makes one complacent. And similar things can be said about accomplishments and popularity. They are part of life. It's not a sin to be in a position of power. Not thinking that these so-called markers of success are evil per se. What I'm suggesting is they're not markers of success. So again, what does it mean today for us to take up our cross and follow Jesus? I'm not sure it will mean exactly the same thing for us as it did for Jesus' first followers. Situations change. But there probably are some themes and principles that will carry over from his time to ours. Let's think about what Jesus did to get him into trouble that led to the cross. Much of Jesus' troubles arise from how he related to or didn't relate to other people. First, he was not interested in, being, in becoming popular with the in crowd as a way of promoting himself or his mission. He apparently never read who's who, or if he had, didn't care. He remained for the most part of his life in the backwaters of Galilee, associating with rural people who, from the perspective of success, didn't really matter. Indeed, Jesus was outspokenly critical of some people, such as the Pharisees, and of power structures, namely the temple system, that made life difficult for others and that gave people a skewed vision of God. And as a result, Jesus did not make friends in high places. 
Second, Jesus was interested in the welfare of common people. That was fine for the most part. No one's going to get into trouble for going around saying you should love your neighbor. But Jesus cared for people who were on the margins of society, with those who didn't really matter. And with regard to people known as sinners, he was criticized for befriending them. He also had the ability to heal people. And he sometimes had the idea that what better day for someone to be healed than on the Sabbath, a day to celebrate new creation. But to other people, the ones in the high places, this was impious and was leading people astray. Indeed, it was challenging the status quo. And how Jesus related to other people stemmed from his understanding of and his relationship to God. God was one who desired mercy rather than sacrifice. He was one who extended forgiveness even outside the temple operations. And indeed, he was one who was near to his people who in fact had come near in person to eat with them. I wonder how this is applicable to us in 2024. Generally, I expect the answer is going to be different for different people. Here's an example of what I think it might look like. I'd rather not give, use myself as an example, but on the other hand, if I'm going to give such a sermon, I suppose one could argue I ought to be able to give a personal example. This is one example specific to me and my wife, and it was possible only because we don't have children. When we returned from living in Africa in mid-1999, we made a conscious decision to choose accommodation in Vancouver that was less than the most we could afford. As a result, we were, from time to time, able to help other people and various causes with finances more than we otherwise would have been able to. I don't say this in any way to boast, but in retrospect, I'm happy for having made that decision. From a small sacrifice, we were able to do some good things. Good things, I think, according to the values of the gospel. So in figuring out what taking up our cross means, I suggest where we begin is by examining our own drive towards success and squaring that with the story of Jesus in the Gospels. It's not merely about suffering bravely with our pain, even though there may be times when we need to do exactly that. Rather, taking up one's cross is about choosing how we are going to follow Jesus. If in Lent 
we are going to practice self-reflection, then let's reflect on this. To what extent are we measuring our lives by means of wealth and accomplishments? And to what extent are we driven by a passion for God, for his rule, and for the people and world he has created?